Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Lord, to pay our price and pay the price for our sin, Father, and give us His righteousness, for in Him we stand. And so we come this morning to just to submit our allegiance to Him, for He is Lord, and to give thanks for what He's done through His works. Lord, You have found us to be faithful, and You have found us to be righteous. And Lord, we just want to proclaim that this morning with all that we have. Thank You for joining us this morning. Just, Lord, do Your work, Lord, that You may be glorified in all that we do. We pray this in the name of Your Son. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? It's a question that has come down through the ages and one that we will all have to answer for. Mark chapter 8, 27 through 30. Who do you say that I am? Jesus has shown once again that he is the Son of God by miraculously feeding 4,000 people and healing a blind man. However, as we always see, the Pharisees reject Jesus' work and they demand an authentic sign from God while Jesus warns the disciples not to adopt the same attitude of the Pharisees. For after observing Jesus for some time, witnessing His miraculous powers, His life-changing message, after having private discussions and teaching moments with Jesus and even performing some of the very same types of miracles that Jesus did in their short-term mission trip, The disciples, as we saw last week, are still struggling to put it all together. Their hearts are still hardened. They're not able to see like the blind man who sees men like trees walking. They have partial sight of who Jesus is. Their eyes are still blinded to the truth of who Jesus is and the role of the Messiah. The healing of the blind man, as we saw last week, symbolizes the opening of the disciples' eyes of the true nature of the Messiah which leads to this week's pivotal scene in Mark's narrative. Peter's confession that we're about to read, that Jesus is Christ, the Messiah, and at this point they are witnessing something wonderful, something extraordinary, and even something supernatural. They believe that He is the Messiah, but yet they're still unsure of what that means, or even what the Messiah's mission is. That's where we find ourselves in Mark's narrative. So today, let's read that passage, Mark 8, 27 through 30. It's here on the screen. It's also in your Bibles, I'm sure. Let's go read that silently as I read out loud. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. The others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Very small, but how powerful. So much of Mark hinges on who Jesus is. In the same way, our whole lives pivot on that phrase, who do you say that I am? Open our hearts to your words today. Very familiar passage of scripture. Let us not just skate over it. Let our minds not become fogged. Let us not be distracted. But Father, let us do the work that you have for us this morning. May your spirit have free reign. 
And Lord, may we respond to your word in the correct way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we see here, who do you say I am? Now this is interesting. Mark, remember, is a very action-packed, oriented book. It does not give us the full ministry that Matthew and Luke give us. Matthew is very oriented towards what's going on at a particular. It's a thing of action. And Jesus now is ending his Galilean ministry. It may not seem like he's been going on for three years, but at this point he has. And he's now heading to Jerusalem and his predetermined appointment with the cross. On their way, they make a stop at Caesarea Philippi, which is interesting that they chose this city, that Jesus chose this area, because that was the center of pagan worship. First, it was the Canaanite Baal, God. Then it was a Greek god named Pan. And then now the Roman Caesar, the Roman emperor, is God. And so it's in the midst of this city that Jesus, as they're probably looking, and there's probably lots of still remnants of worship, whether it's Baal and Pan, and maybe still, obviously, all the things of Caesar there. And he says, who am I? And this is a very important place as we look. And Jesus is going to ask them these two questions. The first one is, we see, who do people say that I am? Jesus wanted to know who the people think he is. Everywhere Jesus went, people came to see him. His reputation had spread far and wide. It was outside of Palestine or Israel. It had reached to the coastlands. It had reached into the deserts, into the places north and south. Immense crowds would gather to hear him teach and to see him perform miracles and to receive healing from him. Mark tells us that some of the crowds were astonished, amazed, receiving him with joy and rejoicing with, with his mission and his ministry while others were perplexed, troubled, angry, and sought to destroy him because of his works. Disciples would have been in and among the crowd much more than Jesus. There was 12 of them. They would interact with the crowd and able to hear and answer maybe many of the questions about Jesus. So he wants to know, what are the people saying? What are you hearing? What's the interaction that you're getting? Give me some feedback. The disciples reply that the people think that he's either John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the other prophets. Now, just as a note here, I'd like to give you some observation, is they believed he was John the Baptist. Now, we've talked about that. Herod and others were impacted by John's ministry, and they believed that Jesus was cut of the same cloth. We're not so much talking about reincarnation, because obviously their lives uh, intersected and covered over each other. It was John who had baptized Jesus, so it's not that he's actually reincarnated, but he's of the same ministry. They're preaching the same type of ministry. It's not that John the Baptist was resurrected or reincarnated. And also we have to remember that John and Jesus probably looked very similar. They were cousins. So with the way they walked and the way they talked and the way they did things, it would be easy to say from a distance or even maybe close up, hey, these two people kind of look kind of familiar. So they're thinking he must be John the Baptist. He's somebody like him. For Elijah, many of us know Elijah, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. He's prophesied in the Old Testament as coming before the Messiah. Did you know that even to this day, the Jews, when they have the Passover, provide an empty cup and open the door for Elijah to come? Still to this day around the world, they celebrate Passover. That's one of the things that they do. They're still waiting for Elijah to come. So for Jesus, they thought maybe this is finally Elijah. Many thought from the book of Maccabees, one of the apocryphal books, but probably impactful because it was only about several hundred years earlier that those were written, that Jeremiah, one of the prophets, would come back for the Messiah. 
And obviously, as we know, the Jews, they were looking for the Messiah due to the testimony. This was, again, a generation that is looking for the Messiah. So some would think, well, he must be one of the prophets. They're not quite sure if he's the Messiah. He must be one of the prophets. As they're not really sure of who Jesus was, most believe that he was the one to come before the Messiah. So he must be the one to prepare the way. And that actually is going to be a question in several weeks where they ask him, are you Elijah? Are you the one to come before you might recall that the Pharisees, though, thought he was Beelzebub. He was the prince, the king of all demons. He was Satan himself. While his own family and others thought he was mentally deranged, insane, and out of his mind. Opinions of Jesus' identity were quite diverse during his ministry. And today, it's not much different. Mark Copeland, in his commentary, Mark notes that today, many people believe that Jesus is just a fabrication and to deny he ever existed. I don't know if you ever come across that, but it's very difficult to deny that. There's many testaments to his time here on earth. He seems to be quite established that he's a historical character, but there are many who believe, oh, he's just a fabrication or he's just a composite. Many will say he's simply just a good man. He's a good teacher akin to Gandhi or some other peaceful teacher. Many will believe that he's a prophet. He must be someone, he's maybe not God, he's not really the son of God, but he's some type of divine person, or maybe he's one of the many sons of God. As far as the prophets, many believe he is a prophet of God, but not the son. Islam teaches he's just another prophet, a good prophet, an important prophet, but just a prophet. Mormons would teach that he's just one of the sons of God, one of the many. Him and Satan would be brothers, as well as you too can become a son of God or a God yourself and will have many sons. To the Jehovah Witnesses that believe that he's not a divine being, he's just a special man. And so even then as today, many people struggle with knowing who Jesus is. Either way, whether the answers are from back then or today, they're inadequate views of Jesus. They get some of the glimpses, they get some of the, the idea of who he is, but yet it's still inadequate of who Jesus truly is. So hearing what the crowd thinks, Jesus now moves to his disciples when he says, but who, who do you say I am? Jesus is interested in what those who know him best, those that have traveled with him, those that have ministered with him, have been privately taught and instructed. He wants to know, what do you think? You've been with me now almost three years. My family, who I've spent my life with, they think I'm deranged and out of my mind. But who do you think I am? Peter, the spokesperson of the group, declares that they as a group believe that Jesus is the Christ. The English word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is translated from the Jewish word Messiah. That's what the Jews were looking for. The Messiah means anointed one. We saw that in Psalms 2 when you see you are my anointed one. You are the Messiah. To identify Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, is confessed that He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. You are the one that we've been looking for. You are the one that we've been promised. You are the one that we've been praying for. It's interesting, after seven and a half chapters, Mark now lays down more evidence for his claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In his gospel, he has been narrating all that Jesus had done, proving this is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. He's been narrating all that Jesus had done. He narrated his baptism, where the Father audibly declared that Jesus was his Son. 
Jesus' authority over the natural world, over the supernatural world, authority over life and death, authority over the Mosaic law, over the Sabbath and what was clean and what was unclean, and even his authority over the religious leaders. This declaration from the disciples is now going to introduce the real ministry and mission of the Messiah. So this is a pivotal part as we reach here in Mark that's going to take us now to the cross. But in verse 30, what's interesting is when here they make this declaration, you are the Christ, we believe you're the Messiah, we believe you're the one. Jesus then strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Oh, you guys got it. Now, be quiet. Seems kind of odd. Just as he had silenced the demons and those that he'd healed from speaking about him, Jesus commands his disciples to hold off in repeating his identity. Seems kind of odd to me. Once they know it, why don't they just tell? I mean, if you saw the Christ, if you saw, hey, we know who the Messiah is, we would be like Andrew who was going around Jerusalem saying, here, let me tell you about someone we found. Let me tell you about a man who knew all things. So the Samaritan woman went and told all the people, here's a man who's told me all things that I have done. You would think this was the time now. The disciples are finally getting it. This is the time he says, now go tell everyone who I am. But yet Jesus says, do not tell anyone that I'm the Christ. You see, the reason is because the disciples will still need more instruction on the nature and the mission of the Messiah before openly declaring it. Jesus begins this instruction in the next passage, as we look at next week, of telling them who and why the Messiah. You may ask, well, why is he doing this? Well, as Walter Wessel, he's a theologian, wrote that the ideas clustered around the title Messiah in the Jewish mind tended to be more political and national in nature. And we spoke about this, so this is not a surprise to you. We see this time and time again. They're looking for a political leader. Jesus had already experienced this with the crowds. The people were always looking for a chance to rise up against the Roman government, and who wouldn't? This is a government that was oppressive. This is a government that made them worship Rome. They were in charge of all their lives, and it wasn't the Roman Empire only. Before them, it was the Greek Empire, and then it was the Persian Empire, and then it was the Babylonian. They had suffered for thousands of years under the rule of someone else. One of the reasons they looked so diligently for the Messiah was because they misunderstood the mission of the Messiah. And that's where I want us to park this morning because it's not only identifying who the Messiah is, but it's more important what he's going to do or just as important. You see, again, they desired a national, political, military leader. We want someone who's going to lead us and drive everyone out of the promised land and reset us up as the David-Solomon kingdom that it was supposed to be. The Apostle John tells us that after the feeding of the 5,000 men, that Jesus, perceiving that then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew to the mountain by himself. See, Jesus was not going to have part of it. Still, as we're seeing, like the blind man who is partially healed last week, the disciples and the people still do not see Jesus clearly. See, here's the point as we go through it. Jesus is more than just a good moral teacher and man that lived a good life. He is more than just a teacher that taught people to be nice to each other. In this day and age, that seems like what would boil Jesus too. 
He's just a good moral man. He's an example of how we live our life. Or he's just a good teacher and he's taught everyone the golden rule. Just be nice to each other. You see, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God that was promised back in Genesis 3. See, you and I must remember that Scripture teaches us that after the creation, God created all things and He said it was good. But then our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into temptation and they rejected God and the goodness of God, which brought sin and death into the world. You and I must understand this, and you and I know this from our own experience. We know this just as we read the newspaper and watch the news. That sin destroyed a perfect world. That sin destroyed the perfect obedience. And sin destroyed the perfect relationship. And take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. For as we read those three sentences, that would leave us with no hope. For we would think this world has been destroyed. It cannot be perfect. We cannot make it clean. We cannot roll back the oceans. We cannot recover those things that are lost. It is not perfect. We would think, well, there's no perfect obedience. If sin has destroyed that, how can any of us ever please God with our actions? And we can't. For the Bible says there's none without sin. And if anyone is say that he has no sin, he makes God a liar. So who could stand? Who can stand before a holy God? And if sin destroyed the perfect relationship, how could you and I ever, ever, ever hope of not only being right with God, but having our relationships reconciled between each other? But God gave a solution in the promise of a Savior. For very soon in the same scene in which they rejected God, God finds them hiding in the garden. And in Genesis 3, you're there. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, that snake, that Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts in the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15 is the key. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This passage is understood as pointing to the defeat of the serpent by the final descendant of the woman. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first announcement of the gospel. It was the promise of a Savior to save us from sin, to make the world perfect again, to enable us for perfect obedience, and to make all relationships perfect and right once again. You here may today be like the world and say, why do I need a Savior? see, most people aren't looking for a Savior. They're really just wanting a solution to a problem. That's why we have all the self-help books and all those types of things. And Christianity has the same thing. You go to a Christian bookstore, look on Christian Amazon, uh, Amazon on the Christian books, you're going to find Christian self-help books all the time. How to do this, how to do that, how to do this, how to do that. And we made Jesus just a solution to a problem. Your marriage is bad, just add Jesus. Your finances aren't great, we'll just add Jesus. You want to sell more Amway, we'll just add Jesus. That's how it works. And that's what we've just stirred him down to be, is just a problem solver. But what you and I need is not a solution to a problem that you and I perceive. What you and I need, what the world needs, is a Savior. We don't necessarily need giant walls to keep people out. 
We don't need more bombs and all things of that nature. Those things are good and needful many times. What the world needs is a Savior. It's what your marriage needs. It's what your family needs. It's what your health needs. You need a Savior. The answer is found in Ephesians 2. Turn there. Right back to the New Testament. You and I need a Savior. But there's so many of us say, no, no, I don't need a Savior. I'm not that bad. I'm okay. I'm not that awful. Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians. Look at verse 1. He says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Let me ask you, what does a dead man know? What can a dead man see? How can a dead man live? How can a dead man love? How can a dead man care? How can a dead man give? He says we're dead in our trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's where you and I stand in need of a Savior. And when Jesus there in that dusty old city And he's looking in there in Caesarea Philippi, this place that is just a shrine to all sorts of God and idol worship. I'm sure it was there as they could see. And they say, you don't need another man God. You don't need another God made after your image. You really don't need a political, national, military leader. What you need is a savior. For these gods have failed you. They are inadequate They cannot help you. Your life is going on and on as it has for generations without any hope. You need a Savior. And with the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, what the disciples are saying, though they do not see it clearly and fully yet, they're saying, you are the one to save us. I doubt their mind is going to Genesis 3.15. They would have known it. They probably could have verbally given you it all by by memory and rote. But yet they're not connecting the dots. That's what they need. See, the promise is this is a promise of a Savior who sent to destroy Satan. John the Apostle writes in his first letter, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. They couldn't understand that. For them, if you were to ask the Jew, what is it the Messiah is going to do? Well, he's going to destroy the works of Caesar. He's going to destroy all of this. But yet, he's saying, no, there's something greater. See, that's usually the problem for you and I. See, we look at our lives and we think our problem is somebody or some people or some policy or just something that's just keeping me down. But really... What we see is that it's sin. You and I live in a sin-sick, saturated world. And I don't think you doubt that at all. But how solving that, how God is involved in that, is what's missed by the world. This declaration that Jesus is Messiah is so important because all of a sudden it interjects into human history something that for many people was missing. And interjects the word hope. The word hope. For before that there was no hope. 
life for the common Jew at that time was just going through the paces, just surviving, just existing, just going through under one ruler after another. Yeah, they had a hope that Messiah come and make everything right, but they truly didn't understand. Because let me share with you, even if Jesus was that national political military leader, and maybe that's all he was, and he went and he was able to do that and drive Rome to the sea and back to Rome, secure the borders and kick everyone out and make the Israelites and the Jews a great kingdom. What would that really have accomplished? Jesus would just be a footnote. He'd just be another historical leader. We think of him as Caesar and Augustus and Julius, Charlemagne, some of the others. But he came to do something much greater. With the fact and profession that he is Christ means that there is now hope. Jesus is the Messiah that brings hope. Jesus is the final prophet who comes to tell us the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the priest who comes to offer himself as a sin offering and to present us clean before the Father. Jesus is the king who will make all things new and rule in righteousness and justice. This is what they truly needed. Yes, they had kings before, they failed them. They had priests, but they failed them. They had prophets, but they failed them. Jesus is the one, the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who makes all things new. You see, Jesus is the hope. He's the hope for those that are lost in sin. Jesus is the hope for those that are struggling in fighting their sin. Yes, you're fighting with sin. Yes, we have the presence with us today. But Jesus is the hope that one day He will appear, as Titus tells us, and He'll make all things new for us. Jesus is the hope for those of you who are in need of healing today. Jesus is the hope for those that have lost loved ones, that we may see those that profess Christ. Jesus is the hope for our children. He is the hope for our families. He is the hope for our churches, our cities, our nations, and our government. Amen? That's what it means when you are the Christ. What type of Savior are you looking for today? Are you like the disciples? Still partially blinded? I think this word would have been very encouraging not only to the disciples as he begins to teach them who the Messiah is and what his ministry is. And we'll begin that next week. So I encourage you to begin reading the passage each week with us. But it would have been really encouraging to the March readers, the original readers of this. As he would have told him, you know what? Yes, there is someone right now that sits on a political, national, military throne. Yes, it is Caesar. Yes, we are supposed to say that he is God. But let me tell you, stand firm. I don't care if it costs you financial ruin. I don't care if the cost is social austeration. I don't care if it's just leaving your family. But let me tell you, it may even cost your life. But Jesus is the Messiah. See, they were like you. They were feeling hopeless also in those days. Life was difficult, probably much more difficult than you and I. But then we live in a world that just seems to be in turmoil. People fighting, worlds just going amok. You and I also need to realize that there is a Savior. He's not just a moral teacher. He's just not a moral example. He's the Savior of the world. Who is Jesus? Your answer is most important. 
This is the most important question people can ask themselves. For their response will determine their destiny both in this life and the life to come. You cannot remain neutral about who Jesus is. You cannot sit on the fence. The Bible tells us that God has highly exalted Jesus and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day Buddha will kneel before the Father and confess that Jesus is the Son. Muhammad will do so. The presence of this world will do so. The most influential men will one day bow and say that he is Christ. And even Craglio Satan will bend his knee and say that Jesus is Lord. As you and I will one day. The key is, will you say it today or will you wait till then? If you wait till then, there is no hope. You are left with no hope. It's only declaring who Jesus is today is that hope held out for you. That you could grab onto it and it'll sustain you. And you look forward to that day when he comes again, for he will. So let me ask you, who do you say Jesus is? Do you understand him as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the new priest, the new prophet, the new king? If not, I would ask, would you do so today? Would you join Peter in confessing that Jesus is the Christ? Do not let your hearts waver. Do let not your minds be distracted. For that is the question that all of us will stand before a most holy and righteous God and have to give account. Who do you say Jesus is? Father, we come this morning. We just pray that you would help us now as we just pause and consider that we may respond to this message today. For there are some that are like the crowd that think you're all these other things. There may be even some today that even say that you're just a fabrication or you're just a good moral teacher. There are even some that may profess that you are the Christ, but yet still they see partially. They do not understand the full scope and the full power of the name of Jesus. For there's salvation in no other name except for yours. There's some who may even still today cling to the hope that, you know what, I don't need a Savior. Lord, open their minds and hearts to see that as appointed unto man once to die. But after this, they will face judgment and they will have to give account for this moment right here. Who do you say my son is? And let us proclaim with Peter and the saints of old, that Jesus is Lord, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. Let us put our trust and hope in Him. We thank You for that hope. I pray that You would keep it alive. Let it grow in such a way that others may see, and as Your Word says, that we may give reason for the hope within us. And may we say the answer simply is Jesus is Lord. Thank you for him, and thank you for his life-transforming message and work here on earth. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. 
you could help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.